Today's TribCast is presented by the Texas Bankers Association. For almost 200 years, Texas banks have been cornerstones of their communities. We are the Texas Bankers Association at texasbankers.com. And Texas Tech University. Texas Tech University is creating degrees of impact and making a difference every day. Texas Talking Out. What was that that you said? Texas Talking Out. Gonna hoop upside your head. Texas Talking Out. Tell me who can you trust when Texas Gods This is Chito Vela, Democratic candidate for House District 46. I'm looking forward to talking about the big issues facing our community with my opponent in the runoff at the Texas Tribune's Candidate Forum on May 7th. Hope to see you there. For now, enjoy this week's TribCast. And now, here's your host, Patrick Svitek. Thank you. This is Patrick Svitek here on Wednesday, March 28th with your Texas Tribune TribCast, our weekly podcast about the biggest stories in Texas politics. I'm joined this week by Executive Editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Politics Editor Amon Bathija. Hello. And reporter Alexa Urda, who will join us in just a moment. Uh, but first, we're joined for this uh, first segment by Republican congressional candidate uh, Chip Roy, who's in a runoff for uh, retiring U.S. Representative Lamar Smith's seat, uh, that which stretches from San Antonio uh, all the way up to Austin. Um, just a reminder, we'll be taking your questions uh, on Facebook and Twitter, so please uh, send them our way. Chip, I uh, want to start with you. Uh, <laughs> So you were part of this massive 18-way primary initially. <laughs> now it's down to you and, and Matt McCall, who had uh, previously run against Lamar Smith before. That's May 22nd uh, runoff. What's what's the choice, the contrast, now that it's a, it's a head-to-head matchup? I think by most people's definition, two pretty conservative guys, anti-establishment. I mean, what do you, what do you how do you stand out now that it's a head-to-head matchup? Sure, thanks, and thanks for having me on. Thanks for uh, doing this. Uh, you know, having 18 candidates in the field, you know, everybody talked about what a big number it was. But for those who know a little bit about history, when John Tower ran in 1961, there were 71 candidates right. in that <laughs> right. field. So, so 18 is not too bad. Yeah. Uh, we were very delighted to come out on top of that field. We had 27% of the vote, uh, which had us in first place of 18. And the next closest competitor was Mr. McCall at 16%. And so we were very gratified with the uh, response from the folks in the in the district and um, and uh, the many supporters that we've had, you know, and now uh, I think the choice is, is fairly clear. You're right that you've got um, uh, a choice of, of, of candidates in terms of conservatism. Um, the question is, is on day one, who's going to be able to go to Washington and be effective to make sure that the conservative values of this dis- district are reflected? There's zero question that this is a strong conservative district. Um, and that's not even an ideological statement as much, in ter- or, or a, I should say it's not really a partisan statement as much as an ideological statement. I've been out meeting with the folks in the district, and uh, whether it's from Austin down to San Antonio, but all the way out to the Hill Country, um, this is a very conservative district, and they're frustrated with the status quo. Uh, they want to see change. Uh, many folks in this district are very happy with uh, what the president is doing with respect to changing the regulatory infrastructure, taking on the swamp, as he likes to call it, and they're frustrated with the Congress that's not really doing much to help him out and send him bills that he would sign. So that's what we talk about when we're out in the district. And I think if you want somebody on day one who's going to know who to team up with and how to do that, look to the guy who's endorsed by Senator Cruz, Senator Lee, Jim Jordan, Mark Meadows, and the guys that are uh, actually up there in the trenches fighting today. Yeah. You mentioned bills that Trump signed. I was going to ask about this. Something that was in the headlines recently was this massive omnibus spending bill. You were one of 
many, quite frankly, c congressional candidates in Texas in the runoffs who said, if I were there, I would not have voted on this. Even President Trump expressed some some pretty <laughs> serious reservations. Can you tell us a little bit about how you would have approached that if you were you were a member of Congress? Sure. I mean, obviously, there are important uh, uh, items addressed in the bill that, that raise um, uh, concerns for people in Texas, whether it's military spending, and obviously that's important to Texas and San Antonio, but it's important to the country. So I know there were things in the bill that people thought were important to fund and to move forward. Um, that's fine. But Congress has got to do its job the right way, and there's a right way to do it. And uh, piling up mountains of debt for future generations is not the right way to do it. I don't, I don't think that's a partisan statement. It shouldn't be. $1.3 trillion, uh, a $1.3 trillion bill that's going to give us a $1 trillion deficit in 2019, that's absurd when we have $21 trillion of debt. When Ronald Reagan famously in 1964 in his Time for Choosing speech was lamenting the size and scope of the government and the deficit at the time, what he was talking about at the time was on the order of uh, $17 million a year in deficit spending, which is about $135 million in today's dollars. We're talking about literally a trillion dollar deficit that's just that that's right. extraordinary in terms of what we're talking about today and that's not the result of a time for choosing of a conservative ideology that i think the president reagan was looking to do so so that is my concern with the bill it also has funding for planned parenthood it has continues to fund cities that are uh sanctuary cities and violating federal law from the standpoint of of immigration laws and a host of other concerns in the bill so uh i would have had significant problems with that bill and i think you, you have to start with a conservative approach and then you build towards whatever you need to do to get the bill through a, an obviously split senate and get it through but you don't start with a bloated bill like they did and it's unfortunate they had time to do it and they just didn't do it yeah but the president said he's never going to sign a bill like this ever again do you, do you trust him when you when you hear that from him uh, i mean i'll leave that to the president <laughs> but i i think that the president uh swallowed it in part because of military spending sure um i think that the president now has a um an opportunity to send a strong message as we look towards the budget in this fall and the next round of yeah. of financing the government to uh you know, break out that veto pen and show Congress uh, why the American people sent him to office. Whether you love or hate the president and whatever you think about his style, the fact of the matter is the American people were sick of the status quo and your sort of standard operating procedure in Washington. That's what the election of 2016 was about, and that's what we're seeing from voters now. They want to see action in that direction. Yeah. One issue that was tangled up in this budget debate, and the president was obviously upset didn't get addressed, is DACA, mm -hmm. uh, which has been a uh, an issue you've been involved with, I believe, at the different levels of government. Um, it's been a simmering issue in Congress for the past several months. Um, how, how at this point, do you th what do you think is the best solution for, for that conundrum at this point? Sure. Well, I mean, first of all, when you're talking about that issue, you know, people talk about the DACA population. Well, keep in mind that what we're talking about is something that was illegally and unconstitutionally put into place by the previous president, as the courts have now found as a result of the lawsuit by the Texas Attorney General and joined right. by 24 other states, 25 You were involved total, in that. In the was involved with that when I was the first Assistant Attorney General. Uh, we won that not just in the Southern District, but in the Fifth Circuit. And, and that was uh, very clear that the president overreached and that President Obama didn't have the authority either under law or the Constitution, frankly. Uh, that was for the DAPA population, right? Now we're talking about DACA, the distinct population. As a result, you have a population now that has what was granted a dubious status by the previous president, for whatever the reasons were. So now what do you do with that population? That's the question, right? The only reason that we were in that position was because the DREAM Act, the so-called DREAM Act, had been put forward over the last decade or so, and had been repeatedly, uh, 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 it had repeatedly failed, to put it very simply. And it failed because they had a difficulty getting to the votes they needed because it's a very complicated issue. 
the path forward for that, in my view, is that you have to start with a immigration system that reflects an America first approach, a business needs, job centric approach. You've got to get out of the business of the diversity visas and the chain migration. And people talk about that like it's, you're saying something crazy. All we're trying to say is that you need to have an immigration system that is built on the rule of law and the needs that the United States needs and isn't currently just allowing it to grow and grow and grow on the back of population that comes in without any actual uh, tie to the need of the United States. Um, that's something we need to reform as well as obviously putting in place the security measures that are important. If you start with that, think about this, 10 years ago when we had the first big debates on the so-called amnesty bills and the uh, comprehensive immigration reform under President Bush in 06, 07, and there was a lot of consternation over that. And I was a part of the efforts to challenge those and to stop those efforts because we thought it was heavy on amnesty and light on security. Well, had we just gotten to a place where everybody could agree on security, why should there be disagreement that we should know who's coming across the border, have uh, verification systems in place for uh, our business interests, uh, make sure that we're enforcing the rule of law and have interior enforcement, get that in place so you know who's here, have a conversation about the current population. Had we done that a decade ago, that we would have a better system in place, we would know who's here, and we could have an honest conversation about the, the people who come here, who you understand why they come here. There's, uh, nobody has any fault in Texas. We've got a great relationship with people that come here from Mexico. But keep in mind that you know 25% of the people who come across the border or more are coming from places other than Mexico, OTMs as they're referred to in the DHS land. And um, you know we need to know who's coming across our border in a post 9-11 world, have security on our border, and have an immigration system that works. Mm -hmm. In terms of the specific fate of the, the DACA recipients, do you side with Senator Cruz in saying there should ruling out a, a path to, to citizenship or, or any kind of legalization? Well, I agree with Senator Cruz very yeah. much that uh, a path It's not to, just him, obviously, saying a, that. Well, I just, that's right. Yeah, I just no, it up. Yeah. Sure. No, the path to citizenship, I think, is problematic. You've got, um, I don't know the exact numbers, but I remember re in my few years back, the data was up, upwards of 10 million people on waiting lists to come into the country following our laws. I do not believe that you should be rewarded that someone comes here uh, through their fault or nobody's, you know, through their parents' fault, that they should get a path to citizenship. Um, there are people literally waiting, you know, following our rules to do that. Um, you know, you can have some conversation about status, but only in the context of something that's not going to put somebody in front of the line. So, for example, I had friends in college who came here from other countries and, um, you know, stayed here, worked for a couple of years after school. If they didn't have a sponsor within a couple of years after school, if they're here on a uh, temporary, you know, visa, it expired after their student visa and they had some expiration. I'm not sure why somebody who came here illegally, uh, for whatever reason, should be put ahead of someone like that who's following our rules. At some point you need to be here, you need to be you know, on some sort of student visa, and then if you're not uh, having a job that's, that's uh, 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 you know, getting you the status that you need and going to sponsor you and so forth, then you, we need to be talking about uh, 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 different approaches to, to that population. At the end of the day, you, you have to have a security first and an immigration system reform that works before you're going uh, down the road of dealing with the status. But mm -hmm. citizenship should be, in my opinion, off the table. Right. Um, one other issue that's been in the headlines even more recently is how the, the country and the state are responding to violent gun violence that we've seen at specifically schools, uh, especially after the Parkland shooting. Over the weekend, we had these March for Our Lives uh, rallies across the country here in Texas. Tens of thousands of Texans uh, participated. Uh, kind of a two-part question on this. What did you make of those rallies, just observing them as a matter of public discourse? Because we've seen some criticism of the just the participants. And then what, 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 do, you, what do you propose as the broader substantive solution to, to what they're marching against or the problems that they're trying to draw attention to? Sure. I mean, first of all, obviously, uh, uh, 
hearts go out to all those affected by it, and not just there in Parkland and the school, but the the uh, you know communities that have been facing some of that in similar situations. The church down here, Sutherland Springs, etc. Um, you know, this is this is something that affects um, you know a, a number of us when it happens in the reach of, of, of what it means to communities and families. Uh, in the two parts to your question, to me first, I would never uh, uh, criticize or begrudge any citizen who's going to express their First Amendment rights and go uh, express their concerns about some problem and how they want it to be addressed in Washington. And, you know, kudos to kids for wanting to have a, uh, a say in that conversation. I think that's a, I think that's a good thing. It's great for our society, and, and, and it exemplifies why the First Amendment is so important. It also puts shines a light on why the Constitution and the Bill of Rights matter and why the Second Amendment was enshrined in the Constitution. You saw that John Paul Stevens yesterday said that uh, he thought maybe the Second Amendment should be revisited and maybe uh, revised. Um, I'm just uh, heartened to hear him say that it would need to be revised in terms of a matter of amending the Constitution, <laughs> i.e., in other words, the Second Amendment is there. It means what it says. It was there for a reason. When the Founding Fathers put it in the place, it was part of the Great Compromise. It was a part of what George Mason and the key anti-federalist founding fathers were a part of and trying to get the Second Amendment in place. And it had everything in the world to do with pushing it back against tyranny. And we take for granted, as Ronald Reagan famously said, you know, uh, freedom is never but a generation away from potentially being extinct. And at some point here, you got to recognize the Second Amendment was there, not as the New York Times editorialized this morning. Hey, we should amend it and make it be for sporting interests and personal enjoyment of your firearms. That's absurd. That's not why the Second Amendment is there. It's not at all. The Second Amendment is there because when you have a state where government is interfering with liberty, the people have the ability to defend themselves. And when people say, well, how can you do that against the great army and the military of the United States? The fact of the matter is, is that empowerment of the people and having the ability to defend themselves is at the crux of American freedom and liberty and always has been. And so I believe that that's important. I think a lot of these kids, not uh, unusually, are misguided in, in terms of some of the information that they're relying on, the number of deaths that are related to firearms uh, in, in the United States, while may vary depending on other populations, uh, certainly as a historical average compared to things like car accidents and other things that we engage in as a free society, uh, I think they overstate. And if you look at the data over the last 10 or 15 years in terms of, uh, of deaths and injuries in schools, it's, it's often overstated. We need to improve security at schools. We saw the breakdown in law enforcement from local to the FBI, and we need to improve that. Right. Uh, we got to move on to the next segment. We have a quick question. We'll get to at least one question here that was coming in over Facebook. Uh, we'll end it with this uh, question uh, from Judd. It's, he says, you have an extensive history working in government. How are you different from the folks that so many people want to get out of Washington? Well, I appreciate that question, and it's a good question. Yeah. I would ask it as well. Uh, first of all, I did work in the private sector for a number of years in banking and consulting. Uh, in fact, almost half of my career since college has been out of government service. Uh, in the time that I've been in government service, I've been working with those who have been challenging the status quo in Washington. Um, and you know, particularly noteworthy, obviously, is Senator Cruz's chief of staff going down and trying to stop the funding of Obamacare in 2013, fighting to stop a gun registry bill in the spring of 2013 in the wake of the tragedy at Sandy Hook, going through and fighting against the earmarks and stopping the uh, bloated spending of the Obama machine. It takes somebody with the body scars of having fought the establishment to know that when you send them to Washington, they're going to stand up and do what they say. Too often we have people who stand up and talk a big game and say they're going to go up to Washington and take on the status quo, and they don't actually do it. So um, I would say look at my track record. Look at the book that I helped uh, Governor Perry write in 2011 called Fed Up. Well, 2010, I guess it came out and Fed Up. Um, and you'll see a lot of what I believe and, and shared beliefs with the former governor. And, um, you know, basically with a track record of a federal prosecutor and a person who's worked for conservatives, I've been fighting the fight. Great. Well, Chip, thank you so much for joining us. We'll, we'll see you out on the campaign trail. 
And uh, we're going to be joined here in just a moment by uh, Alexa. And if listeners would just stick with us, we'll, we'll swap out our, our panelists. Excellent. Hey, guys, I appreciate it. Thanks for everything you all do and having uh, folks like me on. And, and uh, thanks to the listeners listening. Take Thank care. you. Good to see you. See you guys. I'm surprised Alexa doesn't have theme music when she comes in. <laughs> Walk on song. Right. Yeah, what's the deal? That's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, before we get to the next segment, just a reminder to all of our uh, listeners on social media, please send us any questions. We'll try our best to get to them. Um, Alexis, you, you've been covering what's basically been the story of the week so far um, about this uh, citizenship question on the 2020 census. Uh, but before we get to that news, I wanted to just hear a little bit from you about the story you wrote before this all broke uh, on Monday. T tell us a little bit about that story, which is about how it's even before this, it was increasingly harder to count Texans or experts seem to agree. Yeah. Yeah. So Texas has historically been a hard to count state when it comes to the decennial census, um, which obviously a lot depends on including representation in Congress, funding um, for roads and schools and highways, um, including electoral votes, obviously, because those are related to our representation in Congress. And so even before the Trump administration announced that they would add citizenship to the questionnaire, um, local officials, demographers, advocates, just about anyone who's working on census-related efforts said that this year was going to be much tougher than 2010 and then previous census. And that was because you know, funding shortfalls for the Census Bureau in general, um, and more notably some of the, what they called anti-immigrant rhetoric coming out, both of the Trump administration and some of the local debates that we've seen, um, you know, SB4 from the regular session, obviously. And so even before this, they were bracing for um, these challenges in Houston. They're still dealing with displa displacement from Harvey. Um, it was going to be hard before, and then obviously on Monday, we got the news about the citizenship question, which, you know, some demographer said would essentially torpedo an accurate count in Texas. It's partly mechanical, yeah. right? It's not, the census isn't just people going door to door and knocking and asking a bunch of questions and one walking to the next house. There's a bunch of ways to get the information, right? Right. This time around, um, as opposed to sort of traditional door knocking and mail-in um, questionnaires, this time folks can answer the census online, on their phone, on their computer. Um, if folks don't do that, If then, they have a phone, if they have a computer. Right, right yeah. exactly. And right. if they have internet. Um, and if folks don't do that, that's when sort of what are called enumerators go, on, go and knock on doors. During 2010, the Bureau had the funding to send those folks to doors seven times. Times, they don't have those resources this time around. With yeah. the fears that a question about citizenship could cause, um, those fears are even more exacerbated because folks aren't going to be responding even more so. And it's right. going to require additional resources to get those responses, resources that the Bureau does not have this time around. I believe it was ProPublica this morning had the story that the Commerce Department, people who had been there for years, were actually trying to talk the is Commerce Secretary mm -hmm. Wilbur Ross out of adding this question and he basically overruled them. Yeah, I mean, I talked to Steve Murdoch, who's a former Census Bureau director. I think he was there during the George W. George Bush. George W. Bush, right. Um, and, you know, he said that there was sort of an informal group of former directors who all had really, really grave concerns about the census this time around. Again, this was before the citizenship question was added. And he said, you know, anyone who has worked on this thinks that's a bad idea. Yeah. There are ways to figure out the censorship question. I mean, if you just took this as an academic exercise and you said, okay, first I want to count everybody who's living in the United States, and second, I would like to have an idea how many of them are citizens and how many of them are not, there's a way to do that without affecting 
the first count, isn't there? I mean, yeah. So the way it's done today, it's through the American Community Survey, right. um, and that's a Census Bureau survey that only goes out to a limited number of households, and then they sort of wait those responses, um, and that's how we're able to get estimates of citizenship population. The American Community Survey, the questions that are in there, most of them actually used to be part of the census, right. um, including in 1950 when it was the last time they asked all households about citizenship. Um, you know, the Texas Attorney General, Ken Paxton, has pointed to, well, we did this even in 2000, but what he's referring to is sort of this long-form questionnaire that was only sent to about one in six households. Mm -hmm. Most that essentially most people do a short ACS. form and then right. right right and so that's essentially what's become the american community survey um which obviously doesn't go to every single household right. in the way the census would yeah alex i want to ask you about the news conference throughout this morning but we have a interesting question coming out of facebook from ash he says so, so there are studies that show that including questions about citizenship haven't historically deterred uh, undocumented folks from answering questions this time is different because of why it's being asked and because of who is asking it, question mark. Uh, I haven't seen those studies, but if you accept that, I mean, is it, how much does this do you attribute to the current political environment, the, the fears that could come out of this? Yeah, I'm not sure what studies they're referring right. to either. Um, but, you know, what we've heard from people who have done this for actual decades is that people that are fearful of the government are not going to answer the door to begin with when the census um, enumerator comes by. Given the current political climate and given sort of, you know, even just last year when there were those raids here in Austin and right. sort of the fear that that caused in immigrant communities, you know, folks pointed to that as an example of the fear that is real right now in the immigrant community and not just the immigrant community, but their families. Yeah. You know, a million Texans live with a family member who's undocumented. And so the problem is it's not only immigrants who are going to be fearful, not only immigrants who are here um, on an undocumented status or aren't authorized to be here, but it's also their family. So the repercussions could be pretty wide. It mirrors the conversation about sanctuary cities and some of the objections from sure. police chiefs who yeah. were saying, you know, if we're going to do community policing and go out into the community and say, hey, what happened on your street? If people scatter whenever they see us, we're not going to be able to do that. And if we're too forceful with the sanctuary cities laws, that's what's going to happen. It's, it's kind of a parallel argument. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I talked to census officials uh, before the citizenship question was announced, and they said, you know, local officials play a really important role in the census. Right. They are the people who oftentimes are out there saying, this is safe, you can do this, nothing is going to happen to you if you answer this. Um, and obviously, in light of this, there are concerns about what the top of government in each sort of level is going to be saying about this. I think you'll see a lot of mayors um, get very involved, a lot of state representatives get very involved. In the past, the governor's office has not been involved in these sort of efforts. Um, we're still waiting to see if that's going to happen this time around. But you know, local officials play a big role. And what census officials said that if there is concern about people that are coming to knock on your doors, that is going to affect the census. Right. So, so what are Texas Democrats and, and also Republicans, to the extent that they're weighing in on this, what are they saying about it? You were at a news conference this morning with opponents of the citizenship question. Is there anything Democrats can do to, to stop this or just opponents of it can do to stop this? this? This goes to one question we actually got, which is, is this a done deal? 
Yeah, so, so far the only opposition really in Texas in terms of um, political affiliation has been among Democrats. Uh, few Texas Republicans have even commented on this, and the few that have have done so to say, yeah, I also asked for this. And that includes right. Senator Ted Cruz, who said that he had written to Census Bureau <coughs> officials and Ken Paxton. Um, the, there are a couple of avenues left. Um, obviously, there are lawsuits coming out of several other states challenging um, the inclusion of this question. And then the other thing is that Census Bureau officials are going to present these questions to Congress. Um, I think it's April 1st when they're um, laying them out. And the, the hope is that some of those congressional leaders will try to change something or um, bring up any sort of concerns on that end. There, have, there has been some legislation that's been introduced to sort of essentially block any sort of citizenship question sort of separately from the lawsuits and all of that. So um, it's not a done deal, but you know, you'd have to put your faith in the court system and in Congress in terms of um, whether it's going to be blocked or not. Got it. Well, thank you, Alexa, for, for all your reporting on this. I'm sure we'll, we'll be continuing to follow it. Uh, before we switch gears, we'd like to just thank another TripCast sponsor, NRG. At NRG, we're changing the way people think about and use energy. Um, so in our final uh, 10 minutes here, wanted to talk about uh, what we mentioned with Chip and a few other topics. But we, we talked with him about the, these March for Our Lives rallies over the weekend, which we saw across the country, also in Texas. Um, we had a reporter keeping track on some of the, the larger protests uh, in cities in Texas. Um, is there any evidence that these these rallies that we saw are changing the debate in Texas? I mean, we've seen them having some impact in other places, or is this still a pretty unmovable uh, fixed kind of conversation in, in Texas as it relates to combating gun violence? I, you know, you're more likely to move elected officials in Texas if this turned into votes. And, you know, the evidence isn't with the protesters at this point. It could be after a runoff, it could be after November, if the people who show up at these rallies turn out to be voters, um, then that's a powerful voice. If they turn out to be protesters but not voters, which is, you know, history would, su would suggest, then there's no reason for people in office to change their positions unless they're, you know, just persuaded by an argument or, or by the latest case of, of a shooting here or there or wherever it is. Right. The turnout at these rallies was really extraordinary. Um, right. I mean, in, in most of these cities, I don't think they'd seen a, a rally as big as this sure. since um, the day after Trump's inauguration, uh, at least but certainly in Austin and I think probably in Fort Worth and maybe Houston. Mm -hmm. They had, had some big rallies, but not, this was like the biggest since then. Um, so if I think Democrats are excited that this is like a way of kind of reminding all those people who came to that first rally sure. after Trump's inauguration remember you're still mad about Trump and don't forget to vote. Well, and I think a lot of people have focused on sort of registration efforts at these sort of rallies and look at all the people we're registering, but we know that registration does not mean turnout, especially among young Texans who historically have some of the lowest turnout rates in the state. Right. The 65 plus age group is sort of the, you know, the most consistent group that turns out. They also happen to be people who are white who are also more consistent to vote and turn out in elections. And so I think, you know, I would be surprised if we saw major changes this go around based on this yeah. issue. Um, but I think given sort of the animation and the energy around, you know, anti-Trump right. sentiment going into the midterms, uh, will be interesting to see if those numbers change in any way. Right. One Texas Republican who did take some kind of action after uh, the recent series of shootings is John Cornyn, the, the U.S. Senator. He introduced this Fix Nix Act after the Sutherland Springs church shooting in Texas. Right. Um, and it was signed into law last week by President Trump as part of that big spending bill that we talked about. 
Amon, can you tell us a little bit about what that, that bill did and what people think it's actually going to, what practical impact it's going to have within the context of this anti-gun violence conversation? So Cornyn announced support for this bill um, right after Sutherland Springs shooting. It was because the, the gunman had pleaded guilty to domestic violence in a military court martial, and the Air Force had never... I believe it was the Air Force never reported that into the national database. So, uh, and apparently there wasn't much of a, there was nothing kind of forcing the Air Force or punishing them for not uh, reporting that. So this bill kind of prods the state, uh, the federal agencies to report more to the database uh, and punishes them a little bit if, um, if they fail to. And it's, it's, what's been fascinating about this is like the New York Times did a profile on Cornyn and called him the liberal face. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The Republican face. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The Republican. We're going to get some emails. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. The, Republican, yeah, yeah. the Republican face of gun control on this one bill, basically. Mm. Is this gun control? I mean, I mean, it's 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 making a system that's already in place a little stronger. Sure. Yeah. Cornyn, Cornyn would say they're just trying to enforce right. the laws that are already in yeah, place. Yeah, and, and the Sutherland Springs guy was you know, should have been reported and wasn't, you know, what the yeah. heck. And so, you know, tighten that up. He's also talked about some other things like bump stocks and right. some things like that. You know, Sutherland Springs, I think, um, turned his head. And I think Las Vegas turned some Republican heads. And, you yeah. know, uh, there are some things that arguably are in or on the fringes of current law that um, don't uh, make the IRS or the IRS, the NRA, take away your A plus <laughs> rating. <laughs> One of those big bad yeah. <laughs> number things. Yeah. This is why gun control advocates were so uncomfortable with Cornyn's bill, just because they 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 agreed with it, but they're right. worried, and I think we're actually kind of starting to see this play out. Republicans are going to are going to kind of say, "We already did gun control. We did that," and point to this because there is something they did that strengthened gun control. You can't argue it does a little. Just uh, I think I've I've read uh, some gun control advocates calling it a baby step. Right, uh, right. Well, but I think I think that's why Patrick's question is both funny and interesting in that, you know, can you call it gun control if it's simply enforcing something that's already on the books? And yeah. especially it seems like it's administrative blunder control in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> like, but if but if, yeah. but if the if the idea is put a bunch of laws on the books and then don't enforce them, then you don't have gun control to begin with. Sure. So if you start to enforce those laws that you had right. and weren't enforcing, you have control where you didn't have it before. Right. All right. Before we wrap up here, I'd like to uh, remind listeners to please rate and review us on iTunes. Here's a recent review from Jeff Jackson, who says the <laughs> Texas Tribune is simply the best policy coverage in Texas, not just election coverage or issues relevant to Austin, but they cover issues on the border, education and around the state. They have great weekly conversations, even when Evan is there. I appreciate <laughs> wow. their effort and hard work. Thank I you, Jeff. Jeff. We'll give your, your I like Jeff regards already. to Evan. Yeah, <laughs> Pretty great. Um, one last topic here, and this was this came out late last week that uh, us and a few other media outlets confirmed that uh, the University of Texas system is uh, potentially interested or is actively courting or has courted Rex Tillerson, who was just fired as the U.S. Uh, Secretary of State. Um, do, do you Look, think he'd be a good fit for, work. for the job? <laughs> and this would be for the job of chancellor. Right. Uh, would he be a good fit for that job? You know, I don't know. I mean, you know, he's a graduate of UT. He's, uh, you know, he's one of the exalted people. I mean, he's one of the, if you go through the list of, you know, people who went to UT who went on and did well, Tillerson's certainly one of those. He's a former head guy at Exxon. Um, he was Secretary of State for about a year. Um, and that was bumpy, but, you know, interesting. And, you know, he's um, got deep Texas roots. He's part of the Texas establishment, regardless of what happened in the Trump administration. And to the extent that UT is kind of the... Um, 
head institution for the Republican establishment or the or the business establishment in Texas, maybe. But I'm, this has proven to be a very very tough diplomatic job, even for a Secretary of State to, to get through the <laughs> to through the the rocky shoals around the University of Texas. It's just right. this is really poli- political. I'm just trying to imagine like the public and student reaction. You're going to bring a Trump, Trump administration official in charge of the system. Oh, but don't worry, he was only there for a year. Before right. that, he was in charge of Exxon. He that- didn't like it. <laughs> well, as I pointed out in the news the other day, he did call Trump a blanking moron, so he's like <laughs> vaguely part of the resistance in some ways. So, so we have one part of the campaign. <laughs> we, do, we, do have, we, have, we do have one UT grad in the panel here. We, right. should get the, yeah. we should get the alumni reaction. Well, I'm mostly interested in seeing whether Tillerson prefers to deal with Texas lawmakers versus, you know, heads of state from other countries and Trump. Yeah. Uh-oh. That's the extent of my reaction so far. Yeah. Very diplomatic. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I should well played. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, in our, our final moments here, we'll get to just one final question we had coming in on Facebook. Uh, this goes back to the census question. Andrew asked, would a poor census count hurt Republican seats in Texas? I think you touched on this a little bit, but you want to... Uh, address that directly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the state is projected to gain three congressional seats so far based on our population growth since 2010. Obviously, with Republicans in control of the legislature, that could give them a boost in adding even more seats to their big majority in the congressional delegation. Um, If we don't accurately count our growth, those three seats are in jeopardy. Mm -hmm. Are are those seats just assumed that they're going to be Democratic seats? I mean, no, absolutely no, right. not. During the yeah. last redistricting cycle, we gained um, four congressional seats. Three right. of those went to Republicans and one went to Democrats, even though um, people of color who tend to support Democrats were behind like 90 percent of the population growth. Right. OK, that's all the time we have. Uh, if you like listening to the TripCast every week, one more reminder, please rate and review us on iTunes. Those Ratings help us reach more listeners like you. And if you value the Tribune's nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom, please consider making a donation at support.texastribune.org. Thanks to Shiny Ribs for our music and to the Texas Bankers Association, Texas Tech University, and NRG, our sponsors this week. On behalf of Ross, Aman, Alexa, Chip, and our producers, Justin and Bobby, this is Patrick. Thanks for listening. Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking. This is like, you know, when you talk to people who run in 23, it's just like, oh, my God, I was, uh, <laughs> my car, my car died halfway through the campaign. You know?